0: Welcome to Context and Clarity. I am Chuck. I used to be a Democrat.
1: I'm Karen, and I used to be a Republican.
0: I am still a liberal.
1: And I'm still a conservative, but we both found our parties no longer represent us, so we decided that...
0: Together, we would look to the past to gain perspective on the present.
1: And to find a common set of facts in a post-fact world.
0: And we are glad you're joining us. Karen, it's been a while since we've been able to record. How have you been?
1: I've been doing pretty well. How are you doing?
0: I am doing well. There's been a lot of interesting things happen. There
1: have been a lot of interesting things happen. It's kind of paralyzed us and made it very, very difficult to get episodes out because every day we're wanting to keep up and we're finding ourselves falling further behind.
0: Well, and it seems like every day things are changing. Right. So what you were going to say a week ago doesn't seem very relevant today. Right. So
1: we've been struggling to kind of figure out where to go from here. Um, But I think that we have some things figured out, and I'm excited about that.
0: We have been um, just playing the fiddle while Rome burns, Karen.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've been talking about spies on another podcast. That's what we've been doing.
0: Yes, we have spy stories. Yes. If you're interested.
1: Yes, we would love for our listeners to check that out. But moving forward with this show, that's our baby. We are hearing the term constitutional crisis thrown about an awful lot these days. And we wanted to find out exactly what is a constitutional crisis. Have we been in one before? And are we in one now?
0: Well, to be honest, constitutional crisis is a very effective term for the media to use. Yeah. First of all, it is alliterative.
1: Yes, it is.
0: And you are sucked in by anything that's alliteration. I know that. I
1: I am. That's true. And I know I'm not the only one.
0: And it immediately catches attention and gives it quotability. Yes. Also, it evokes emotion. It makes you feel something, usually fear and a desire to act. And that desire is usually in the form of a strongly worded tweet.
1: Yes, done very indignantly.
0: Exactly. Mm -hmm. And if you are lucky, it gets retweeted. Right. If we are in a crisis, then we must respond. And then we blog, we post, we Facebook, and we talk about it. And then we feel that surge of neurochemical rewards because, darn it, this is a crisis and we are doing something. Right, Karen?
1: Right. <laughs>
0: We're going to fix this with right. our Facebook posts and our likes. and Yes. But is this all political marketing to get votes, to get funding, or just ratings?
1: Right. That's the question. Well, first things first, we have to define the phrase constitutional crisis correctly. But therein lies the fundamental problem that's really not so easy to do. Vox reached out to constitutional experts from a range of schools in an attempt to define what actually makes up a constitutional crisis. Keith Whittington, the politics professor from Princeton and who has published a lot of material on the subject, said, I think a constitutional crisis is best understood to be moments when the constitutional system itself seems to be breaking down. This can happen in two ways, a crisis of operation and a crisis of fidelity. A crisis of operation occurs when important political disputes can't be resolved within the existing framework. An effective constitution is one that provides a structure for contesting and resolving political disputes. When a constitution can no longer do that, and our disputes spill outside that constitutional framework, then the constitution itself is in crisis." A crisis of fidelity occurs when important political actors are simply unwilling to adhere to the constitutional commitments as they understand them. If consequential political actors determined that a constitutional rule or a prescribed constitutional outcome should be ignored because some other political priority rather than following the Constitution is more important— the Constitution's ability to guide and constrain political behavior has, to that degree, been cast into doubt.
0: Mark Tushno, a law professor at Harvard, said, A constitutional crisis, in my view, would occur when the institutions in place are unable to ensure that the outcome of persistent conflicts will remain within broadly democratic lines. And unfortunately, we can't tell whether that's the case until we see how the conflicts play out, usually over a reasonably extended period of time. That means we should find severe and persistent constitutional conflicts worrisome, and should encourage everyone to take a deep breath and think about ways to resolve the conflicts to preserve democracy as broadly understood, but again... Severe and persistent conflicts do not a constitutional crisis make.
1: Then we have Tom Ginsburg, who is an author and the law professor at the University of Chicago, and this definition is basically the accepted definition amongst a lot of the political science class says a constitutional crisis is a fight among branches of government in which neither side backs down and there's no clear resolution within the constitutional system. Crises are dangerous because they tempt players to engage in extra constitutional action in order to get their way.
0: And lastly, Linda Monk. I I liked her. She's a Harvard graduate and a constitutional expert and historian.
1: Right. And this was an unofficial suggestion. This was kind of something that she wrote as commentary, but it made a lot of sense. She
0: said, if a governmental actor like the president has a fundamental lack of understanding or disregard for the constitution, that situation can cause a crisis because that understanding is such a fundamental responsibility given the president's sworn duty to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution.
1: Clearly, the consensus is basically saying that all the branches of government must be dysfunctional to actually create a constitutional crisis. There are a lot of constitutional conflicts. They happen all the time. But an actual constitutional crisis is very, very rare. When one takes a deeper look at the research and all the analysis regarding what makes up an actual constitutional crisis, it breaks down to four main points that 538 summed up pretty nicely. Number one, the Constitution doesn't always tell us what to do. One of the issues that arises with that is the question of emergency powers. Although the Constitution is silent on the matter, some scholars have made the claim that the protection of the nation in a state of emergency is an inherent power of the chief executive. Abraham Lincoln saw things that way when he suspended habeas corpus during the Civil War, as did Harry Truman when he attempted to seize the steel mills during the Korean War. It's very difficult to say seize the steel. That's hard. That's hard to say. Here's the thing. The national constitution was constructed to be somewhat vague on purpose. That's why when you compare it with state constitutions, the difference in detail is pretty amazing. But there's a reason for that. The framers were living in a contentious society, and they knew the only way to make the document work long term was to allow for state clarification and interpretation in many areas.
0: Point number two. Sometimes constitutional interpretation is in question. The Constitution offers pretty limited views on how the federal government is to intervene in the economy, and the New Deal pushed those limits, sometimes resulting in the Supreme Court overturning many of its provisions. There have been many questions in this arena in regards to executive power. For example, when Congress censured Andrew Jackson for taking aggressive measures to destroy the Second Bank of the United States. Another example of this concern is in regards to presidential war powers. Congress attempted to remedy this with the War Powers Resolution in 1973. So far, those executive power questions have not reached the scholarly standards of a constitutional crisis. But most experts agree that we are rapidly inching closer. Now, another issue in this category is impeachment. Of course, Article 2, Section 4 states that the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States can be removed from office on impeachment for conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. The main question here is what constitutes high crimes and misdemeanors? That's not spelled out in the Constitution. And in fact, there wasn't even a federal code when the Constitution was written.
1: Right. Well, number three was the Constitution sometimes instructs us on what to do, but it's not always politically feasible. One example of this is when presidential elections cause contested and very confusing results. Theoretically, the Constitution does have a path forward for this problem with the 12th Amendment and the House of Representatives is supposed to decide on a president. But in an incredibly polarized political environment, doing that would be pretty infeasible, and it could cause a big crisis of legitimacy for the new president. I mean, look at Abraham Lincoln. Hmm. That would be a big example of that. So talks about the 25th also fall within this purview. There is an established process, but if the cabinet decided that was what was the best course of action they would face a population who feels that their voice was circumvented.
0: Point four, institutions themselves fail. When partisan polarization, individual corruption, or power plays cause the system of checks and balances to fail, the stage is set for a crisis. Government shutdowns are a milder form of institutional failure. Now, it's our personal belief we both agree that this right. is the category where we're the most vulnerable right now. Definitely. We've seen power plays that we've never seen before. Right. We have partisan polarization that mm-hmm. we've never seen before. Right.
1: Well, let's apply some historical context to those criteria. Here's some specific examples. In 1841, we had a president die in office when newly inaugurated President William Henry Harrison Died just 30 days after taking office. And remember, this is the guy who gave the longest inauguration speech in the rain, and then he died of like pneumonia 30 days later. So,
0: your grandmother was right, Karen. (laughs) You'll catch a cold, you'll die of pneumonia.
1: If you talk too long, there are consequences. Well, the Constitution wasn't clear on what should happen next. It just specified that Vice President John Tyler should assume the duties of the president. But was Tyler the president or the acting president? The 25th Amendment in 1967, which was quite a bit later, eventually settled the succession debate. And didn't Tyler just kind of declare himself president since there wasn't
0: Tyler went to a little town, had a judge swear him in as president, right. give him yeah. the presidential oath. And much like Michael on the office declared bankruptcy, he just declared himself president. <laughs> so
1: I'm president now.
0: Yeah. Now I think the biggest one is in 1861 when states left the union.
1: Right. Which I mentioned earlier. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Upon the election of Abraham Lincoln, Southern states started leaving even before he was inaugurated. That's got to be disheartening.
1: Right? Yeah.
0: I wonder what his approval numbers were in Mississippi.
1: Well, right. I mean, you know, President Trump talks about how people look at him as not a legitimate president. I mean, I think his complaints are pretty minor in comparison to Abraham <laughs> exactly. Lincoln's.
0: Yeah. When when, he, when Trump keeps saying they have it out for me, I mean, I think Lincoln had a real right argument there. Right. And it took the Civil War to settle the question of succession. So really, the Civil War is the main thing that everyone agrees is the biggest example of a constitutional crisis.
1: Right. Exactly. Well, in 1876, the states could not agree on election results. So the presidential election between Samuel Tilden and Rutherford B. Hayes came down to four states, including Florida. Which couldn't agree on votes in the Electoral College. The actions of a special commission of Congress and the Supreme Court members headed off a constitutional crisis as Hayes took the election by one electoral vote. We saw the same thing replayed in 2000 with Bush versus Gore. We did. Mm
0: -hmm. And we had, I think, probably what I what I think is the second closest is in 1937 with FDR's court packing plan. As we said earlier, the Supreme Court was rolling back parts of his new deal. He didn't like it. So he just decided, you know what, let's just make it let's just put more justices on there. Right. And he finally backed down and him and Congress came to an agreement on that. So a constitutional crisis was averted there. Right.
1: A lot of legal experts actually say that doesn't qualify as a constitutional crisis because Roosevelt eventually accepted that the defeat and he didn't try to circumvent that congressional approval. Right. But it's still listed as a possible constitutional crisis. So we're mentioning that one and this one, which is in 1972 and 74, it was Watergate. And it, and just like the FDR's court packing plan, A lot of scholars actually say this did not meet the standard of constitutional crisis. But the scandal involving Richard Nixon's re-election campaign, the existence of incriminating recordings and claims of executive privilege, made it all the way to the Supreme Court. In July of 1974, the court ruled that Nixon must hand over the tapes. He complied and then resigned as president. Some legal experts argue that Watergate doesn't fall within this criteria because Nixon did appoint another special prosecutor. Watergate is actually usually termed a political crisis rather than a constitutional one. Linda Monk, the historian that we discussed earlier, she even makes the case that the first constitutional crisis was actually the Sedition Act of 1798, which criminalized criticism of the government. She believes that this was a test of the First Amendment and a clear example of how the party in power, the Federalists, were making a claim that circumstances merited disregarding the Amendment's assurances. In her opinion, what actually made it a crisis was that the Federalist-controlled Supreme Court would have probably not overturned the law, which would take away the reach of checks and balances— The crisis was resolved two years later when the Federalists, in part to backlash over that act, were voted out of power. They were replaced by politicians who let the act expire, though that election has been by some seen as a crisis also because it exposed the Constitution's failure to adequately address what should happen in the case of an electoral tie.
0: So, the question looms, Karen. Are we now in a constitutional crisis? Well, we are not going to attempt to answer that question ourselves.
1: Exactly. Not exactly.
0: Eventually, we are going to get our opinion there. Mm -hmm. But we want to go through the branches of government and measure their effectiveness. Remember, it is not until there is no other recourse that we are actually in a crisis. So in the next episode, we will discuss whether or not the legislative branch is doing its job I think we can all agree it's not. (laughs) And where that fits in under the understanding of a constitutional crisis.
1: Okay, now that we've gone over the important stuff, it's time to take a moment to give some quick clarity. So, these are we're going to do a couple of new segments that we're going to do every episode, and this is one of them. We're going to give some quick clarity. Several websites have cited and memes have circulated stating the president was quoted as... Calling for the death penalty for suicide bombers.
0: <laughs> See, I agree with them there.
1: <laughs> well, pretty funny and disturbingly believable, the quote originated with a satirical article on a site called The Breaking Berg, whose tagline reads, A satirical blog serving Western Pennsylvania and beyond. It is possible the quote came off as so believable because of actual calls from the president's Twitter that called for the death penalty for terror suspects. So, I mean, the whole point of the meme was to point to his um, perceived lack of, in- lack of and- intelligence, but it was a satirical sight. It was pretty funny, though.
0: Now we're going to get to the new highlight of the episode. Really the highlight of our series. We've done about, I don't know, 40 shows, 50 shows, 60. I don't know. But this is really going to be the highlight from now on, Karen. <laughs> um, We're going to have Chuck Chat, Karen.
1: Chuck Chat. Oh, there Chuck we chat. go. Chuck Chat.
0: Just imagine me like FDR. Little fireside
1: and his little chat. Little fireside chat, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And
0: I have a question for you, Karen. Okay. Why did Mueller hold a press conference to resign?
1: Well, I think he had a point.
0: No, this is what's sad. The man actually had to hold a press conference to tell people to, one, read the report, (laughs) and two, explain what was in it. Now, you know, I'm kind of a jailhouse lawyer, (laughs) and I have read a good portion of the Mueller report. And it's just sad. What does it say about our society? And I'm going to tell you what it says, Karen. Okay. We aren't smart. <laughs> we are a dumb, dumb people. <laughs> we have a non functioning Congress, and it was apparent long ago that the Senate had ceded all of their oversight to the executive. We can't even we can't even make an argument. Nobody can make a coherent argument to me now that the Senate is even trying to check the power of the president. But now, the House, they keep pretending they're taking the high road, but they've chosen to basically ignore what we know is in the report and make this an argument over getting the redacted version because they're afraid of the political cost of performing their constitutional duty. And that duty is, at a minimum, to open an inquiry into impeachment. Mueller gave them a roadmap and basically today pleaded with them to do it. And they will or they won't. But it reminds me, as Ben Franklin said to a lady as he was leaving the Constitutional Convention, we have given you a republic if you can keep it. And now is when we decide how badly we want to keep it. Do you feel me, Karen?
1: I'd rather not, Chuck.
0: (laughs) Do do you feel me? Do you feel me? Because I can keep going. I got a lot more to say, Karen, on this.
1: I do understand what you're saying, yes.
0: The reports there, they're afraid that Clinton came up pretty well from his impeachment. His approval ratings were higher than they were going in. Right. And And they don't want that to happen. Right. But they took an oath to the Constitution. And I'm not saying that you're going to be able to impeach him. Right. But at best, open up an inquiry.
1: Okay. Well, thank you for your opinion. Thank you for that Chuck chat.
0: That is all I have to say about that.
1: Well, just for today, I'm sure for today. Although obviously Chuck really should have the last word since he's, you know, so magnificent. I write the script.
0: You you add stuff to the end. Karen. (laughs) I like how you do that.
1: I write the script. So I'm going to end with the happy little place that is Karen's corner. So civil discourse is very important to me. It's something I've talked about since the beginning of the show. And I want to take a few minutes to explain what I mean. The Harvard Kennedy School published a great article talking about civility in its two different forms. The first is a superficial kind of civility, being nice, not insulting people or using ad hominem attacks. The second is a deeper, more important, and established sense of civility that is about behaving in ways that are necessary for cooperative projects such as schools and democratic societies to work well. This deeper sense of civility comes from the Latin that relates to citizens. Civility, in this sense, is behavior that is important for good citizenship. Good citizenship leads to strong communities, and strong communities stand in unity during difficult times. There are several programs right now that are trying to teach civility, and I'm actually going to be going through some of the curriculum that they're using during Karen's Corner in future episodes, but they're teaching civility not as a form of compromise or common ground, but as a necessary component to a functioning society. One program determined to make inroads in teaching civility was founded by two Detroit journalists, Nolan Finley and Stephen Henderson. Stephen Henderson leads the Detroit Free Press left-leaning editorial page, and Nolan Finley leads the Detroit News right-leaning editorial page. Here is what the two of them said that they learned about each other. They said, We sat down in a mobile recording studio, just the two of us, and talked for an hour or so about our upbringings, the people who influenced us, the significant events that helped shape the way we process facts on our way to forming an opinion. We each started life in very modest households that teetered on the edge of poverty. Our common path upward was education, hard work, and a healthy fear of the wolf at the door. Both of our families came to Detroit from the rural south, lured by automotive jobs. Steve's family became deeply involved in the union and civil rights movements, rising through the ranks of the UAW and eventually Detroit's political structure. That informs his belief that the institutions of society, when challenged and held accountable, are the best hope for creating fair and equitable communities. Nolan's roots are in Kentucky's Appalachian foothills, populated by fiercely independent people whose distrust of government is a cultural touchstone and who earn everything they have with muscle and sweat. That shaped his belief in self-reliance and the virtue of free markets. The more we learned about each other, the better we understood what made one of us a conservative and the other a progressive. We also came to the important realization that two people can look at the same set of facts, apply their individual experiences and values, and come up with different opinions. And that doesn't make either one evil or ignorant. Though we may advocate for different solutions, the outcomes we want for our community are mostly the same. Okay, do you think these guys listen to our show, Chuck?
0: I think they're trying to steal your idea. See, I'm not. I'm. You're the one that's always wanting civility. I don't really care about civility. I'm
1: just saying, though. I mean, I think we have actually said that exact thing, word for you word. Have
0: said that exact thing, right? I
1: have not. <laughs> I,
0: I have said, just slap people in the side of the head until they get it.
1: <laughs> well, they also said we have learned to have intense discussions without trying to convert each other. We gave up a long time ago on any hope we'd bring the other to an epiphany. We're always going to disagree, and that's okay. In the process, though, we learn things and often consider perspectives we might have not been exposed to otherwise. It's useful to challenge our own positions. It keeps us from getting too comfortable and too smug. I don't think you ever have to worry about being too smug.
0: And I don't think you ever have to worry about being too comfortable.
1: (laughs) Well, either way, it was good stuff. So we all need to remember, ourselves included, we don't know everything. And there's always the possibility that we could be wrong. We're all on a journey. So let's be kind to each other. And may we remember to use context to find clarity. We
0: appreciate everyone taking the time to listen. There are many ways to support the show. The most obvious is through Patreon, and if you would like to, you could find us on Patreon at Context and Clarity. Another way to support the show is to retweet, share us with your friends, share us on Facebook, or just tell your friends about our show and tell them to listen. At the end of this show, there's a trailer for a podcast that Karen and I stumbled upon that we found very funny. It's called Fallacious Trump. It is two British men who examine what Trump does using logical fallacies. Welcome to Fallacious
1: Trump, the podcast where we use the insane ramblings of individual one to explain logical fallacies. It's a
0: slippery slope fallacy. fallacy. Where does it start? The conspiracy theory fallacy. That election's going to be rigged. Well, no evidence whatsoever.
1: No, no. Did he say that?
0: A logical fallacy is an error in reasoning that results in bad
1: or invalid arguments. I'm your host, Jim. And I'm your other host, Mark. Mm. Argumentum ad nauseum. Well, the reason I've been saying Brexit means Brexit is precisely because it does. Which is clearly nonsense.
0: <laughs> you can connect with us at fallacioustrump.com. Or wherever you get your podcasts.